0: So Genesis chapter 38, it kind of seems to me like it's in the wrong place. What I mean by that is we just started this story of Joseph. And now we take a detour and we're going to look at the sin of Judah. And don't forget, it's through the tribe of Judah that the Messiah is going to come into the world. Judah is going to make, in this chapter, he's going to make every terrible and unthinkable mistake possible. But at the same time, we're going to see God's hand working through human imperfections, through human frailty, to bring about his sovereign plan. In Genesis, 30, Genesis 38, it's an important chapter for the chrono, chronology, man, I had this hard time saying, I don't know, chronology, the step by step progress of the story of Jacob and his family because it shows us why they had to go into Egypt so they would not be absorbed by the, you know, the, the Canaanite people and the other tribes that were there in the land. Because in Genesis 38, we're going to see the family of Jacob. They're coming apart. I mean, they're just unraveling before our eyes. And if God doesn't step in, to protect them from being absorbed by the surrounding people, it certainly would have happened. Well, Joseph goes to Egypt to be prepared for the call of God on his life, which will ultimately result in the, in the um, protection and survival of the nation. We see why it's necessary for Jacob and his family to go uh, down into Egypt. And again, it's because they're just they're just unraveling. They're falling apart. They're they're coming apart at the seams. This chapter is also set here. In contrast to the next chapter, where we're going to see the integrity of Joseph, in this chapter, Judah is going to go into his daughter-in-law, uh, thinking that she's a prostitute and have a sexual relationship with her. But in contrast to that, in the next chapter, we're going to see. Joseph fleeing from Potiphar's wife when she tries to seduce him. Even though we're studying chapter by chapter at this time, we always have to look at the story as a whole so that we don't miss any details. So Genesis 38 verse 1, it says, it came to pass at that time. Now, that's a time stamp on the story for us. At that time, is a reference to the time period following the cell of Joseph to the Ishmaelites, Joseph's brothers, knowing that he was loved by their father more than they were. Joseph uh, J- Jacob giving Joseph that tunic of many colors, indicating <clears throat> that Joseph was his favorite son. You know, the other boys, they envied him. They hated him for his dreams. You know, his dreams, of course, being that they would one day Bow down before him, and they—it was so bad they couldn't even speak peaceably to Joseph, and the and the brothers, you know, they got together and they decided they're going to kill him because of these things. So if you look back real quick, okay, look back to Genesis thirty-seven verses twenty twenty-one. We're going to read. Uh, it says, "Come, therefore, let us now kill him and cast him into some pit." And we shall say, some wild beast has devoured him. We shall see what will become of his dreams. But Reuben heard it, and he delivered him out of his hands and said, Let us not kill him. So we see Reuben didn't want to kill Joseph and came up with this idea of throwing him in the pit. And if we look down a little bit further, verse 36, you see Joseph, uh, Judah also opposed the killing of Joseph. Verse 36 says, Judah said to his brothers, What profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother and our flesh. And this, and, and uh, his brothers listened to him. So if you remember the story, right, they didn't kill J- Joseph, they threw him into the pit and they killed a the goat and they dipped that tunic of many colors into the blood of, of the goat. And they took it to the father, Jacob. And they said, hey, we've found this tunic. We found this coat. You know, We don't really recognize it. I mean, do you? And to me, it's so very interesting. Because uh, right here, we see Jacob being deceived. He deceived his dad by killing a goat and cooking it and making it taste like venison. Then he used the skins to wrap his arms and wrap his neck so that uh, he could make his dad think that he was hairy while he was impersonating his brother Esau. And now Jacob's sons are using the blood of a goat to deceive him. How interesting is that to me? You know, it just confirms what the Bible says, Galatians 6:7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. No one gets away with anything. And as we finished Genesis 37, we saw Jacob. He comes to the conclusion that his favorite son has been devoured by wild animals. And Jacob is grieving inconsolably. So verse 1 says, it came to pass at that time that Judah departed from his brothers. Now, Maybe Judah is feeling guilty for what uh, he and his brothers did to Joseph. Maybe he's feeling guilty about how he deceived uh, their father. You know, it was Judah's plan to sell Joseph to make a buck or two, even though uh, he intended to save Joseph. He might be feel, be feeling guilty that he wasn't there um, to save him. And then the top it all off, the lie. You know, they told Jacob that Joseph was dead. And you know, the heartache that that caused his, their dad. I mean, maybe that was just too much for, for Judah. Jacob weeping, refusing to be comforted. And, and, and maybe Judah at this time, he just wants to get away from this whole ugly affair for a, a little bit. It's like Judas had enough. So Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. So now we're going to get a glimpse of Judah's life. And it's an interesting chapter. Judah is, is uh, found in the genealogy of Jesus Christ: Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Then the lineage of the Messiah continues not through Joseph, but through Judah. And you might right, you might remember. Uh, Revelation 5 five speaks of Jesus as the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. He comes through the lineage of Judah. So Judah leaves his home and he visits Hira, who is a Canaanite. And it says, verse 2, And Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shua, and he married her and went into her. So Judah marries this woman, who's a daughter of a Canaanite named Shua. And it just makes you wonder, Judah, what are you doing? Are you just crazy here? What are you thinking? Judah makes this huge compromise here. He takes a Canaanite woman. It was was forbidden. It was frowned upon. Remember how Abraham, how he didn't want a Canaanite wife for his son Isaac. Abraham uh, wanted someone with a godly character for his son. So he sent the servant back to his house to find a wife for his son. And remember, Isaac didn't want a Canaanite for Jacob. And we saw that it was a grief to Isaac and Rebekah when Esau took a Canaanite wife. There was a real concern for the bloodline back then, that it wouldn't be absorbed by these pagan nations around them. But Judah, Judah doesn't seem to care about any of that here. He doesn't seem to care about spiritual things. He doesn't care about the promises of God for the family, it would seem. He sees this Canaanite woman. He wants her, and so he takes her, and he marries her. No concern about um, what God is thinking. And Judah couldn't be more wrong than what he does here. There isn't any spiritual concern in the family, at least amongst the boys, Uh, at this time, and God knows it. Verse 3, so she conceived and bore a son, and he, Judah, called his name Ur. Now Judah names the child Ur, and it means watcher. And you just have to wonder what those little eyes watched and saw in that house. You have to know that the immorality of the Canaanite people, the Canaanite culture, their worship of false gods, you have to know that it crept into the life of Judah, through this Canaanite woman. Much of that negative influence must have been the seed for what goes on in this chapter. Judah names this kid, but Shua is going to name the next two kids. Verse 4, She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. And it seems as if the picture is being painted that Judah's wife is taking control of the family. And it seems Judah is stepping back from his responsibilities of as the leader of the family. You know, where do you think he, he learned that from? Well, he learned that from his father. Remember back in Genesis 34 when Dinah was raped? You know, it was the boys that stepped up, and they took the lead. It wasn't Jacob. And as mentioned before, we've seen a glimpse of it. We're seeing a glimpse of it here. You know, we've talked about it where the sins of the father, the failures of the father are reproduced in the sons. And verse five, and she conceived yet again and bore a son called his name Sheila. Now, kind of reminds me of that Johnny Cash song, huh? boy named Sue, right? But uh, apparently at this time, Sheila was maybe a really manly name. I don't know. But he was at Chizib. Shezib, where she bore him. Verse six. Then Judah took a wife for Ur, er, er, Sorry, Judah took a wife for Er, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. So quite a bit of time has passed now, and Judah makes this arranged marriage for his son for Er. But this girl, she's also a Canaanite. And verse thirty-seven says, "But Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord killed him." Now, we don't know anything more about the events than what we just read right here, right? We don't know what it was that Ur did in the sight of the Lord that was so wicked. Ur's, wicked, Ur's wickedness, it's not revealed to us. And I think God is lovingly and graciously keeping these horrific details, you know, these disgusting actions uh, from us by not telling us what his wickedness was. And we don't know how the Lord slew him either, right? The Bible says that our very breath is held in the the Lord's hand. Maybe the Lord just withdrew his hand for a time. We don't know. Sometimes people read this and they think, you know, what kind of God would, would go about killing people? And you have to understand, Ur must have been extremely wicked for God to kill him. I mean, God is putting up with a whole lot of wickedness at this time. So he must have been really extremely wicked for God to take action. But if we take the time to piece this story together, we see Judah, he's unequally yoked with a Canaanite woman. And the Canaanites were known to be wicked idolaters. Uh, They were extremely vile. Uh, in their worship of their pagan gods their worship included all kinds of of uh, you know immoral and wicked practices so you see here Judah being unequally yoked with this Canaanite woman and you know again she has she has influence like every mother has influence on the family and as we study on as we just look down the road as Through the Old Testament, we come to Deuteronomy 7, and God tells his people that they were not to intermarry with people of the land because they would draw away. They would draw away after those pagan gods, and they would be turned from the living God. Then as you come to King Solomon, studying through the Old Testament, that's exactly what happened to him. He married... You know, many women from the surrounding nations. And because he was unequally yoked, they drew him away from the one true and living God. And when you come to the New Testament, Paul gives a very strong exhortation in this regard. Second Corinthians 6, 14 through 18. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has a temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord, Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. I mean, what Paul says there in 2 Corinthians, it's such a strong exhortation to us not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. God says that we're to be a people set apart to him. We're not to be yoked with people who don't know him. Because the result will be that our hearts will be turned away from him. You know, it happens all the time. There's no account in Judah's life of him seeking the Lord. He becomes unequally yoked with this Canaanite woman. And the next thing you see is that they have kids. And we read in verse 7, the Lord kills them. And it's probably due to Judah's failure to lead and the influence of his wife, the life she lived, and the wicked practices that she brought into the family. Verse 8, Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and marry her and raise up an heir for her brother. Now this was called the Leverite marriage. Leverite literally means brother's wife. Later the Leverite marriage, it becomes part of the law. And it's interesting to me to discover That there are 34 laws in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers that we find in seed form right here in the book of Genesis. And the Leverite marriage, it's one of them. The Leverite marriage was, you know, if you had an older brother and he married a wife and he died before uh, he had a son so that his name would be carried on, the next oldest brother would marry his widow. Then he would go into her, and she would conceive a son. Uh, That son would be considered not that son, not that brother son that fathered the son, but the older brother that is deceased, right? It was was his son so that his name would continue on. And it was very important in that culture for a man's name, the family name, uh, not to die out. You know, we're less concerned about those things in, in uh, our days, but this was very important for them. And also the Leverite marriage, it was also done so that the widow would have children to support her. The practice kept her from living the rest of her life destitute or impoverished. In verse nine it says, but Onan knew that the heir would not be his. Onan knew that that boy wasn't gonna be his, even though He would have to raise him. He would provide for him financially and and, and whatnot. And that boy wouldn't be his. It would be the older brother's son. And what that means is that son would then become the heir of the entire family. But if that son was not born, then Onan uh, would be the one who received the family blessing and the inheritance being the next oldest son to Judah so next oldest son of Judah so it says and it came to pass when he went into his brother's wife and the hebrew here says whenever he went into his brother's wife right so onan this is a frequent practice onan is using her for sexual pleasure and it and it came to pass when he went into his brother's wife that he emitted on the ground lest she should give an heir to lest he should give an heir to his brother. So Onan is using her for his own uh, selfish gratification and pleasure. And he also makes sure that she wouldn't conceive. In verse 10, And the thing which he did displeased the Lord, therefore he killed him also. So what displeased the Lord? Some people see this as birth control, and they say, That's what displeased the Lord. You know, this this verse has nothing to do with birth control, right? Over the years and through the Catholic Church, this verse has been used as a proof text to to say that God is against birth control. And the Catholic Church has gone as far as to say that any form of birth control is a crime against God. Now, I personally, I don't know of any verse in the Bible that says God is against birth control. I mean, I don't, I don't know of one. But they'll say that while pointing at this verse. They'll say, if you use birth control, God takes a dim view of it and may strike you dead. You know what? God doesn't kill people for using birth control. The problem was that Onan disobeyed his father. He should have done it or not have done it, right? He should have said, I'm not going to perform the Leverite marriage. Onan didn't have to marry her. He could have taken her to the gate of the city where the elders sat, and the elders would then plead with him, uh, with, with that brother, to give the woman a child so that the firstborn son would carry on the name of the deceased brother. And if he chose not to do it, then the woman would spit in his face and take off his shoe. And then that man would be known as the man who had his sandal removed. And you know what? Today we might be tempted and thinking, yeah, so big deal. But in those days, it was a very big deal. This was a huge disgrace. This, this was a very disgraceful thing if he would refuse to build up his brother's house and if you go to Leviticus 25, that's where you see the description of this practice. You can read all about it. But what Onan did do, which was displeasing to the Lord, is that he went into this woman who only made herself available to him for the purpose of conceiving his son. And he sexually satisfies himself in the situation. And when it comes to his part, that's the only reason that she's involved. He doesn't allow her to conceive. He's selfishly took advantage of this woman and it displeased God. So God takes action and kills him. Verse 11. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house. Meaning go back and live with your parents. Go back to your family. Live with them. Till my son Sheila is grown. Sheila at this point is too young to be married. While at the same time, Judah is afraid for him, right? Because we read on, it says, for he said, lest he also die like his brothers. I mean, it would appear that Judah has no intention at all to give Shelah to her. You know, he's already lost two sons. He doesn't want to lose another. But Tamar, we read, went and dwelt in her father's house. Tamar is obedient to Judah's command in the hopes that she might be part of or become a partaker of, of the blessing that God has placed upon this family, upon the family of Jacob. In verse 12, now in the process of time, the daughter of of Shua, Judah's wife, died, and Judah was comforted. Judah went through a period of grieving, and after it's all over, he, we continue to read, goes up, he went up to the sheep shears in Timnah, he and his friend, Hira the Adulamite. Judah goes up to meet the guys who are shearing his sheep. But notice this. We see a little bit different description of Hira here, right? This is the the second time that he's mentioned, and it now says that he's Judah's friend. The first time he was mentioned in verse 1, Judah uh, wanted to get away from his brothers, and again, probably because of the guilt over what happened with Joseph, You know, how he lied to their dad, you know, resulting in just this tremendous amount of grief that Jacob, uh, you know, felt. So Judah goes up, it says, to visit Hira. Now Hira is called his friend. And what's interesting to me is when you look at both of those circumstances, both of those instances, you see the first time Hira is mentioned. Judah becomes unequally yoked with a Canaanite woman. I think Hira here is a picture of an ungodly friend and how an ungodly friendship ended up in an ungodly relationship with the daughter of Shua. And that's what the Bible says, Proverbs 12, 26. We're warned, the righteous should choose his friends carefully for the way the wicked leads them astray. 1 Corinthians 15, 3, Paul says, do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. And again, that's exactly what's happening here with this friendship of Hira. Ungodly friendship, first time, leads to ungodly relationship. And now the second time we're going to see that Judah goes into and has an illicit encounter with what he thinks is a prostitute. Verse 13, and it was told Tamar, saying, look, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she took off her widow's garment. In verse 12, it says, now in the process of time. So it would appear that a number of years have passed between verse 12 and verse 14. Tamar has been living with her parents for this long period of time after the death of Onan. She's not... A manhunter. She's playing by the rules. She's not out there trolling for men, looking for men, right? She's wearing her widow's garments all these years waiting for Sheila to come, to marrying age, to uh, raise up an heir. She's been waiting for Judah to do the right thing, but it hasn't happened. Judah's not kept his word to her. So, she takes matter into her own hands. So she takes off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil and wrapped herself. Now this is a description of the way a harlot would dress in, in these days and sat in an open place which was on the way to Timnah. For she saw Sheila was grown and she was not given to him as a wife. Verse 15, when Judas saw her, he thought she was a harlot because she had her face covered. Again, she's taking on this appearance of a harlot. And what we don't immediately understand is that in the Canaanite culture, at the time of sheep shearing, you know, it was like, it was just a joyous time. It was like bringing in the harvest. But what the Canaanites would do to ensure, you know, a a healthy flock next year, to ensure a whole lot of wool be, um, you know, sheared next year during the time of sheep shearing uh, you they would go where these temple prostitutes were and they would engage in sexual acts uh, as part of the worship of their false gods and so this is what Judah is doing he's being absorbed by the immorality of the culture Judah looks at Tamar thinks she's one of the temple prostitutes and he's going to go into her. And he doesn't recognize her because her face is veiled. Verse 16, then he turned to her, by the way, and said, please let me come into you, right? For he did not know that it was, uh, that she was his daughter-in-law. So she said, what will you give me that you may come into me? I mean, Judah asked if she's open for business and if he can be the next customer, And she says, what are you going to give me? So they negotiate a price. Verse 17, he said, I will send a young goat from the flock. So she said, will you give me a pledge till you send it? I mean, basically what she's saying is, you're offering me a young goat, but I don't see a young goat with you. Am I supposed to trust you? I'm going to need a pledge. I'm going to need some kind of down payment, some sort of collateral until you make your promise good. So verse 18 Judah said, what pledge shall I give you? So she said, your signet and cord, your staff that's in your hand. Then he gave them to her. So the cord was something that uh, went around your neck. And the signet, uh, you know, was probably attached to that cord. Kind of like, you know, somebody's ID, you know, like in your government, they have this lanyard in their ID right here. The cord goes around your neck. The signet was attached to that. And the signet was very unique. It's kind of like the family seal. You know, your signet was one of a kind, right? That seal didn't belong to anybody else in the land. It was, you know, the identification of the family, kind of like a coat of arms, The staff would have been very unique also. It was specifically carved and probably had a crest or the name of the family carved on it. Again, it also was one of a kind. And those items, without controversy, would have been easily identifiable as to whose they were. It would be like leaving a driver's license and a credit card with somebody as your promise to return. So he then, after he gives these to her, he then went into her and she conceived by him. Verse 19, so she rose and went away, laid aside her veil and put on the garments of her widowhood. She, go back, she goes back to her father's house and continues to live her life as a widow as if nothing's happened. And then verse 20, then Judah sent the young goat by the hand of his friend, the Dulomite. Again, you see, it's his friend, to receive his pledge from the woman's hand, but he did not find her. So Judah gives this goat to Hira, his friend, to give to the harlot that Judah uh, went into so Judah could get his cord and signet and his staff back. But Hira couldn't find her. Verse 21, then he asked the men of that place, saying, where is the harlot who was openly by the roadside? And they said, there's no harlot in this place? Hira inquires about the harlot that's hanging out over there, but they're like, what are you talking about, man? There's never been a harlot hanging out over there. Verse 32, So he returned to Judah and said, I cannot find her. Also, the men of the place said, there was no harlot in this place. Then Judah said, Let her take them for herself, lest we be shamed, for I sent this young goat, and you have not found her. Judah says, you know what, I've tried to do the right thing. I tried to give her what I promised, but since, you know, you couldn't find it, forget about it, let's just get on with life. Judah thinks the matter's over, but it's not. You know, it's amazing to realize that God's kids, us, believers, Christians, as God's kids, we don't get away with anything. You know what, Christians, whether you're backslidden or not, They don't get away with anything. God sees to it. The crazy thing to me is God often uses unsaved family or unsaved friends uh, to bust us when we're straying, right? Six months ago, you were telling us how much we needed Jesus, and now you're doing the same thing you're telling us we shouldn't do. What's up with that? You know, when, when unsaved people tell you that you're blowing it as a Christian, you know your testimony is bad. And as painful as it is to be rebuked by an unbeliever, we all should be glad that God brings our sin to our attention. If God didn't show us where we were failing, then how are we to consider our actions and then repent? Right? God pointing out our problem is pure grace in my eyes. If God allowed us to cover up sin without repentance... It would spread in our hearts and our lives then would become a total disaster. And God's not going to allow that to happen in his kids, right? He's going to rein us in if by any means possible. He's going to reign us in. And again, all of us should be so very happy and glad about that. In verse 24, and it came to pass after three months after that, uh, that Judah was told, saying, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has played the harlot. Furthermore, she's with child by harlotry. You know, the word gets to Judah that his daughter-in-law has been fooling around while she's supposed to be waiting for Shelah, right? And notice Judah's reaction. So Judah said, bring her out and let her be born. Burned. (laughs) That's a little bit different things. Bring her out and let her be burned. You know what? How's that for a loving and understanding father-in-law? Isn't that what you ladies want? He goes from zero to a hundred in a heartbeat. Judah hears that Tamar is pregnant and he's angry. She's probably showing by now. He thinks to himself, she's been fooling around. She's been sleeping with other men. She's brought shame on the family, she's pregnant with another man's baby. What a disgrace that is. So Judah says, bring her out and let her be burned to death. And that's the sentence that he pronounces on her for, uh, dis- for disgracing the family. Now, you got to know, I mean, I'm not super smart, but you got to know, if you're going to burn people alive, that's going to draw a crowd Right, Judah is so hypocritical here because three months earlier he was engaged in harlotry. It was with Tamar, but he didn't know know it. Isn't it amazing that Judah could see Tamar's sin, but he couldn't see his own sin? Isn't it amazing how bad our sin looks on other people? He had been involved in harlotry. And you know, this whole thing, it reminds me of 2 Samuel 12. Remember when Nathan the prophet, he goes to David and told him about this poor man that had one little ewe lamb, which was like a daughter to him. I mean, that little ewe lamb ate at his table and drank out of his cup. And then there was a rich man with all kinds of flocks. That one night a visitor came to the rich man's house. And the rich man, he didn't want to go and get a lamb out of his own flock to prepare and set before the visitor. So he went down the street and took that little ewe lamb with, uh, from the poor man. And David, remember, he was just incensed. And he said, as the Lord lives, that man who's done this shall surely die. And he shall restore fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing And because he had no pity. And then remembered, Nathan said to David, you're the man, David. You took Uriah's wife. You know, you had several wives, and yet you took his. And it's amazing how we can completely overlook things in our lives and be outraged when we see those same things in the lives of others who fall into sin in the same way we fell into sin. And you see it in the New Testament too. Remember John chapter 8, the woman that was caught in the very act of adultery. They bring him, they bring her to Jesus with the intent of stoning her. I mean, there are no stones there on the Temple Mount, right? So they are lugging stones with them as they're dragging this girl up. And when it was revealed that there was sin in the lives of the religious leaders... You know, they just walked away. Yeah, you know, no big deal. There was no confession, no asking for forgiveness. And, and what we need to understand is we can be so harsh when we see sin in other people and overlook the sin in our own lives. It's sometimes, it's something uh, you see all the time in the body of Christ, I think, and it's sad to say. It shouldn't be like that. But over and over again, you can see an overreaction um, from a person when they view the sin of another person's life. And a lot of times, if not the overwhelming amount of times, that overreaction gives you an insight into that person's life. There are oftentimes underlying issues when a person who is overly troubled by another person's sins, we're capable of becoming harsh religious people. And we need to watch out. We're capable of seeing the sin in other people's lives, but not willing to allow the Lord to reveal the sin in our own lives. And we need to watch out. It's a danger for us as Christians. Judah says, let her burn. Verse 25, when she was brought out, she sent to her father-in-law saying, by the man... To whom these belong, I'm with child. And she said, please, determine whose these are, the signet and cord and staff. Tamar says, if you're interested, I can tell you who the father is. I mean, the man who owns this cord and signet and staff is the man who got me pregnant. And when she produced the cord, the signet and the staff, everyone immediately knows whose they are. It was like producing a photo ID of the man who got her pregnant. And again, just imagine all these people around. Just imagine how awkward that moment got. Just how quickly it got awkward. You know, men are there gathering wood. You know, there's a crowd around. They want to see the spectacle. You know, there's a stake driven in the ground to tie her up to. You know, a couple guys, they got cans of gas and a Zippo lighter ready to go. And uh, Tamar says, show these to Judah and see if he can figure out who the father is. And the signet probably said something like, Judah, the son of Jacob. (laughs) Something like that. And I bet, again, things got really, really quiet, really, really fast. And verse 26, so Judah acknowledged them and said, she has been more righteous than I because I did not give her to Sheila, my son. And he never knew her again. Judah acknowledged the items, that they were his, but he failed to acknowledge his sin. She was more righteous than Judah because he engaged in sex with her just for his own sexual satisfaction. Where she engaged with sex with Judah, in order that a son would be produced and her husband's name would live on. And again, as you compare the account with the accounts referenced just a minute ago, you know, David and Nathan. When David was confronted with his sin, David confessed his sin. He said in Psalm 51, 4, Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Psalm 32, 5, David said, I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible because the Hebrew gives us the picture that as soon as David just thinks about confessing his sin, before the words are even on his lips, God forgives him. That's how fast the Lord responds to our requests. For forgiveness. God is more than willing to forgive us when we come clean and confess our sins. You know, if there's something in your life that you've tried to overlook, if there's something that is in your life that you've failed to confess as sin, if there's something that you've been trying to hide, trying to conceal, something you know you need to deal with, You know what I encourage you? Ask God to forgive you and cleanse you of that sin. And he'll meet you and he'll remove the guilt that you have. You know, he'll he'll, um, restore you to a right relationship with him. And you know, people don't understand sin as believers. Sin doesn't remove us as his sons. It doesn't alter our sonship as believers but it happens, it hampers our relationship with the Lord. You know, so if you're got some sin that you need to confess, I encourage you to deal with that sin tonight and be restored to a right relationship with the Lord. Verse 27. Now it came to pass at the time for giving birth that behold, twins were in the womb. And so it was when she was giving birth. The the one put out his hand, probably waved, hey, how you doing? And the midwife took a scarlet thread and bound it on his hand saying, this one came out first. It was important in those days to uh, know which of the babies were born first, right? You needed to be the firstborn if you wanted the blessing, the inheritance. And when the babies came out, uh, when that baby reached out, they identified him as the firstborn by tying a scarlet thread around his wrist even though, uh, you know, it was just his hand that came out. They considered him to be the firstborn. Then it happened as he drew back his hand that his brother came out unexpectedly. And she said, how did you break through this breach be upon you? Therefore, his name was called Perez. Perez means breakthrough or breach. Verse 30, after his brother came out, who had the scarlet thread on his hand, uh, they named him uh, with a the name, they called him Zerah. And Zara means scarlet. He was named that because of the scarlet thread that was tied around his wrist when he came out. And it's just amazing. I mean, I, I, you know, we have twins in our family. Uh, Tina has a brother and sister that twins. Tina's sister had twins. I mean, the birth of twins, uh, it's amazing. And Judah, he has these two boys, whether he likes it or not. And it would seem that Judah plays a minor role, if any, in their lives, you know, a minor role in raising these boys up. He has nothing to do with the daughter-in-law after this. And I'll just mention this to you just so you can think it through yourself. There are some commentators, there are more, some taters more common than others, but there are some commentators that see something interesting here, and that is. Whether Judah likes the prophecies of or not, the prophecies of uh, Joseph dreams, saying that he would bow down before him, some commentators see God working it out here in Judah's life, the elder serving the younger, right? And that Zerah being the firstborn and then withdrawing with and Perez coming out first. I'll leave you to think through those things, Um you know, I don't personally see it that way, but that's what some people think. One of the amazing things about this chapter is is that God's going to bring his son into this world, not through the lineage of Joseph. Although you'd think uh, he would because, you know, Joseph was way more righteous. I mean, he conducts himself much more righteously with greater integrity, you know. You'd think that he would be the avenue of the Messiah coming into the world. But not so. God brings the Messiah into the world through Judah and through Perez, one of the twins born to Tamar. Sometimes you hear people say, you know, the God of the Old Testament, I mean, he's only angry. He's an angry God. You know, there's no grace or mercy in the Old Testament. And nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, God is unbelievably gracious and merciful in the Old Testament. And we see it in the life of Jacob and his family. We see it now in the life of Judah that the Messiah would come through his lineage. But what I find most remarkable in this chapter is not actually in this chapter. Turn, if you will, to Deuteronomy 17. Deuteronomy 17 Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20 says, when you come into the land, Deuteronomy, you know, Moses is speaking to a new generation of Israelites. Deuteronomy second law, he's recounting the law. And he says to them, Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20, when you come into the land, which the Lord your God is giving you and possess it and dwell in it and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. One from among your brethren you shall set as king over you. You shall not set a foreigner over you uh, who's not your brother, but but he shall not, speaking about the king, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. For the Lord has said to you, you shall not return that way again neither shall he multiply wives for himself lest his heart turn away again we see it right there nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself also it shall be when he sits on the throne of his kingdom that he shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book from the one before the priests the levites And it shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God and be careful to observe all the words of this law. And these statutes that his heart may not be lifted above his brethren, that he may not turn aside from the commandments to the right hand or to the left, that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. This passage in Deuteronomy, it covers the principles governing a king. And God says, when you come into the promised land uh, and you decide you want a king, right? It's okay. He needs to be an Israelite. He needs to be from the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He needs to be a king that God has chosen, right? He, he can never take the people back to Israel. He's not to amass... Uh, horses to himself or marry many wives or seek after wealth. He's to have a copy of the law. He's to write it down with his own hand. And he's to read it all the time. He's to be a man of the word, right? He was to be a man who was ruled by the word of God. He was to be humble and obedient to the word of God. But then in 1 Samuel chapter 8, the nation cries out to Samuel saying, we want a king. And they wanted a king so they could look like all the other nations. They wanted someone they could see with their eyes. They wanted someone who would go out and fight for them. And that request so tender. I mean, just Saul, Samuel's heart is what I mean is so tender. That request broke his heart, right? The nation had a king. They were ruled by God, and Samuel knew it. He was the one who fought for them. It was God that delivered them. And they were nothing like the other nations because right, their king was the one true and living God. But the people sadly and foolishly insisted on a king wanting to be like the world. And God told Samuel, Heed their voice, 1 Samuel 8, 7. Heed the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, Samuel. They've rejected me, that I should not reign over them. And God told Samuel, make sure you tell the people, right? Make sure they know how a king is going to act, right? So Samuel told them, 1 Samuel 8, 11 through 18. Samuel told them, this will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots and to be his horsemen, and some will run before his chariots. This will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them. I just read that. Uh, and they'll run. He'll take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, and bakers. He will take the best of your fields your vineyards and your olive groves and give them to his servants. He'll take a tenth of your grain and your vintage. He will give it to his officers and servants. He will take your male servants, your female servants, your finest uh, young men and your donkeys and put them uh, to his work. He will take a tenth of your sheep and you will be his servant and you will cry out in that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, and the Lord will not hear you in that day. And you know what the people said? We don't care. We want a king. The king's going to take. God gives. The king's going to take. God gives. But we don't care. We want to be like everybody else in the world. And God gave them their request. He gave them Saul to be their king. But Saul was not the one who God wanted to rule over the nation. When you go to the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1, you see the genealogy of Jesus. Why don't you turn there? Matthew chapter 1. We studied it. Seems like a lifetime ago, doesn't it? You know, actually, it's only nine months. Matthew chapter 1, we read the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. This is the Judah, Tamar, and Perez we've been looking at tonight. It goes on, Perez begot Hezron, Hezron begot Ram, Ram begot Aminadab, Aminadab begot Nashon, and Nashon begot Solomon. Solomon begot Boaz by Rahab. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king. And verse six continues and says, David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. We see four women in the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. Usually you don't see women in a Jewish genealogy, but we see Tamar, who was a Canaanite, and who played the role of a harlot. We see Rahab, who was a Canaanite prostitute. We have Ruth, who is a Moabite, and the wife of Uriah, of course, we know her as Bathsheba. She's a Hittite. All in the genealogy of Jesus, flawed men and women, very flawed men and women, used by God to bring about his purposes. Deuteronomy 23:2 You might mark that in the margin right here next to Perez. It says, "One of illegitimate birth shall not enter the assembly of the Lord even to the 10th generation, none of his descendants shall enter the assembly of God." So if you count 10 generations from Perez, Perez is the first generation. Hezron, Ram, Aminadab, Nashon, Salmon, Boaz, Obed, Jesse, David. David was the man after God's heart, whom God had chosen to be king over Israel. God had a plan all along for there not only to be king over Israel, and if the people had just waited on the Lord they would have got david to be their king they wouldn't have to they wouldn't have had to endure the terrible king that saul was and you know what this is the point god has a plan for each one of our lives god has a plan for your life he has a plan for each one of us when it's not going the way we think it should are you willing to trust god for his perfect plan Are you going to settle for Saul in your life, or are you going to wait for a David? We see such amazing grace in this chapter in the midst of such personal failure on Judah's part. And that's why this chapter is stuck in here, because in the midst of Joseph's story, being used by God to preserve the entire nation, The Lord is showing us that the messianic line in spite of human failure is continuing because the covenant that he made was a covenant within himself and it was unbreakable. God's hand is always at work in our lives. We may not see it. We may not recognize it. We may not appreciate it. But if we will learn to wait on the Lord trust Him and rest in Him, we too will be spared so much heartache and aggravation in our lives. God has a plan. It's a sovereign plan. And I just encourage us as a church, I encourage everybody that's watching, listening, let's purpose on our hearts to wait on the Lord, to trust in Him, to seek after Him, and to have faith in Him. Let's purpose to walk uprightly with integrity and love in our hearts and let's rest in his love and the grace that he has for each one of us. Let's pray. Father God, I do thank you for this chapter. Lord, just a black backdrop to show the gem of your grace and mercy, Lord. How thankful I am for your word, Lord. How thankful I am for the instructions that you have a plan in the midst of my failure. You have a plan. Lord, I'm a flawed man. We're flawed men and women. And Lord, we thank you and appreciate that you have a plan for our life. Lord, help us to get our eyes on you, fix our eyes on you, get our eyes off circumstances, get our eyes off the world around us, and just walk in your love, walk in your light, or with integrity in our hearts, and allow you to do all that you want to do through and in each one of us. I pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.